Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 526th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Simon Corduroy, chair of the history department at the illustrious, prestigious top-of-the-town Iowa State University, uh, who will be talking to us about British-friendly societies from 1750 to 1914. Joining us in the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Jay Swords and Ed Broders. To begin with, welcome back to the show, Simon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it, John. This is the third cog from Monmouth to WIU to Iowa State. You, and you've reached the top, which that just uh, makes me feel so good. <laughs> yeah, this is the pinnacle. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and notice that Dave turned off Jay's mic. That was good. Uh, <laughs> wow. This is a tough crowd. Tough crowd. Yeah, the pinnacle's a thousand feet above sea level. We have a radio show here. Be professional. Anyway, we'd like to begin with. With our format, the first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on the subject. So, can you start us off, Simon, telling them some basic information about what a friendless society is? I'd be happy to do so. A friendly society, put simply, is an insurance club made up of members who meet voluntarily and the meetings are just as important as the insurance. They combine conviviality with sickness and death benefits. And that really is the basic definition of friendly societies. From there, the, oh, the number, the range, the variety of societies is utterly incredible. And the British government for the 19th century spent years and thousands of pages trying to figure out exactly what was a friendly society, how should we define a friendly society, how can we control friendly societies, and they never succeeded. And so, I mean, it's essentially a working man's insurance club that put the emphasis on being pals, offering each other assistance, and also providing local support for people in need. Well, I must admit, when you said that, I started thinking, especially when you were talking about how they worked decades on this and never came up with any solid answers, that this was an aristocratic uh, perspective or angle. But you said it was more of working man? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. <clears throat> the first friendly societies probably developed in the 16th century, around 1550 or 1560, and they appear to have been a reaction to the end of the guilds. The guilds, the, middle, the medieval guilds, were organizations that combined uh, the functions of labor unions and employers' organizations and insurance clubs. I mean, they were made up of the masters, the journeymen, and the apprentices, the three layers of any skilled trade. And the guilds provided assistance, they set the standards, they set wages, and they limited admission to the trade. When the guilds went away, those functions vanished from any kind of unitary organization. Friendly societies picked up the self-protection, the insurance functions. So when you were talking about 
how they went in a thousand directions to come to some conclusions. They didn't use the guilds as any kind of, uh, you know, a mentoring, um, a measuring stick or tool to establish their new aspects besides the insurance, or they just blew off everything but insurance? Well, the, the, the guilds were basically dead as the unitary organizations that people understood them to be. And so the friendly societies were a response to changing circumstances, working men who, who understood that their lives were precarious, their jobs were dangerous, their occupations were hazardous, their families were always in danger of falling directly into poverty in the event of an accident or a sickness that cut off any kind of income. And so the friendly societies took that aspect of the guild organizations and created members, voluntary member groups to help people through hard times. And these friendly societies were probably also chiming in with the industrial revolution that is happening in Britain at the time? Absolutely. That's the background. That's a key part of the background. Although factory workers weren't generally members of friendly societies until later because they simply couldn't afford to be. So it was the skilled workers, the carpenters, the Wainwrights, the Smiths, later on the uh, railway locomotive engineers who could afford to create friendly societies. So it was probably the domain of the better paid working class family. And there were women's societies. I did say working men, but I have to amend that a little bit and say, especially in the middle of the 19th century, there were a fair number of women's friendly societies as well. Okay, so then how did upper class England view these friendly societies? Because um, as we all know, the haves are always terrified with pe from people who they consider be have-nots uh, start organizing and challenging and making demands. What did they think of them? So that's exactly right. There were two modes of attack. Number one, create societies for working men that rich people controlled. That was especially possible in the countryside. So you find, for example, in the southern county of Hampshire in England, there was a very powerful patron, you call it a patronized friendly society, a friendly society with members of the aristocracy who were at its head, who were the patrons. So one way was to try and create competing friendly societies. Another way was to try and control and delegitimize the societies. And so you find newspapers complaining, conservative newspaper editors complaining about friendly societies. I mean, there's from in 1833, a newspaper editor wrote about the imprudence and extravagance of many among the laboring classes while in full work and receiving good wages, their habitual reliance upon the poor rates rather than their own industry, seriously lowering their independence of character, corrupting their morals and bringing much evil and distress upon themselves and their country. There's a sense that the friendly societies, because they were out of sight of those in power were dangerous and that they were corrupting people and that they were essentially working against, at least in the, from the perspective of the English aristocracy, working against everything that, in their eyes, Britain stood for. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Times of joy. 
in moments of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Simon Corduroy, Chair of the History Department at Iowa State University, and we'll be talking about British-friendly societies from 1750 to 1914. Our history buffs for today's show are Jay Swords and Ed Broders. And Jay, why don't you start us off? Simon, first of all, thanks for being on the show. Um, my question, my first question at least, I have lots of questions, um, is so there's definitely, you talked about there being a social element here. How does that social element translate into the communities in which the friendly societies are embedded? Um, are, they, are they doing some of those um, sort of public service kinds of things? Are they helping to organize uh, or influence um, local political? How, do, how does that social aspect translate? Wow, that all sounds so wonderfully altruistic there, Jay. There's none of that at all. <laughs> and this is from a Scotsman, too. Where in the hell did you get that? <laughs> the, the, the conviviality took two forms, basically. Number one, the members met at least once a month, often once a week, in a local public house. And they often had a club room upstairs where friendly societies would meet. And one of the requirements was you had to buy a certain number of pints of beer in order to take part in the, in the club night. At the same time, you also had to pay your weekly or monthly subscription to the fund. And so they were essentially a way for working men to relax. They also had rituals. I mean, in, one of the origins of the Friendly Societies is from the Freemasons. And so they do have a lot of ritual and regalia that's reminiscent of the Freemasons, sometimes in some cases down to the aprons and the sashes that Freemasons are known for. And so the rituals would be rituals of initiation. There would be rituals of elevation if someone is being promoted through the order. Quite often, it's just a, a ritual of sitting down and welcoming each other and then getting down to the serious business of drinking. I mean, these are hardworking people who are very, very oh, infrequently able to just let their hair down and enjoy themselves. And so the friendly societies gave them that option. But there's also the public displays. Friendly societies would, on many religious holidays, march through the town or the village in which they were located, quite often to demonstrate the strength of their numbers, and at least once a year to march to a big annual feast, which for the members was the most important day on the calendar, often during Whitsuntide. Often it was at Whitsun. The Whitsun feast day was um, because it 
comes in, in usually in May, was an incredibly powerful and important date on the Friendly Society calendar. Ed. Yes. Um, were, were these organizations precursors to unions? Not really. That's a complicated question, Ed, because the friendly societies took over the protective elements of the guilds and the labor unions took over the kind of organizational elements of the guilds. But in Britain, at the end of the 18th century, around 1798 and 1799, the height of the Napoleonic Wars, the British government was terrified of revolution at home. And so they outlawed what they called combinations. The Combination Acts outlawed labor unions. The labor unions then went underground. They sort of pretended to be friendly societies. And so for 20 or 30 years, there's this, this long-running difficulty of trying to decipher, is this organization a friendly society that's only offering insurance and conviviality, or is it a labor union that's trying to organize members in order to press for higher wages, better working conditions, to try and protect the craft and protect the apprenticeship? It's, so it's a complex question. The simple answer is they certainly derived from the same source, but they were not quite the same thing. Um, when looking at their makeup and all the above. And Jay pointed out that you're examining this from 1750 to before the Great War begins. But I must admit, after the Great War, when you had um, all those um, nations that fought in the war and lost millions, those that survived, many of them went back to their native lands and kind of formed organizations. The Fry Corps was a big one in the beginning where, although they were former German soldiers and Hitler turned them into the most uh, biggest killing machine another 18 years down the road, in the beginning they seemed to be organizations that got together to let their hair down, to relax, and talk about the war. Uh, was was these uh, friendly societies after World War One? did they kind of impact English society? Only now it was from the, the, the death of war that brought them together? Not really, because before, just before the war, in 1911, the British government passed the National Insurance Act. The National Insurance Act provided every Briton with basic health and, um, well, essentially health insurance. They wanted to make unemployment insurance possible as well, but that didn't quite work. So the 1911 National Insurance Act brought the friendly societies into the state. It made the friendly societies essentially conduits for government insurance. And that meant after the war, the friendly societies themselves didn't have quite the cultural impact, certainly not the political impact that they had before the war. Now, their numbers continued to grow. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the advantages of going into the state is that you see before the um, First World War, there are about six and a half million members of friendly societies in Great Britain. After the war, that number grows to about seven and a half million. And then by 1935 or so, there are well over eight million members of friendly societies. So they continue to grow organizationally, but they don't have the kind of cultural impact that something like the Three Corps had. Jay. So I'm interested to know, it sounds as if friendly societies are quintessentially local. Um, is there 
are there communication between friendly societies? Did friendly societies in areas that were reasonably geographically close um, interact with each other or plan mutual kinds of activities? Or is this really my village, my particular craft in this town, uh, that kind of a thing? You've really directed me to one of the key distinctions within the friendly society movement, and that is, yes, there were local clubs. Yes, there were um, in small villages, there might be two or three friendly societies, one associated with the Church of England, one associated with a local landlord, one associated with a group of workers who essentially just wanted to do their own thing. However, starting in about 1812, affiliated societies Originally, they were local organizations that got together in order to create and benefit from the economies of scale um, that, that they, could, they could use. And so the, the independent order of Oddfellows, Manchester Unity, was the forerunner of this large group of organizations that had branches mostly all across the United Kingdom and ultimately all across the world. I mean... In Monmouth, Illinois, where you know where I used to teach, as you know, there is an Oddfellows Lodge in Ames, Iowa. There is an Oddfellows Lodge, and I'm sure if you look around the Quad Cities, there are Oddfellows Lodges all over the place. So those lodges were part of the affiliated orders that friendly societies created in order to in order to allow members who were mobile, members who moved from one place to another for work, to retain their sunk investment in those societies and to continue to benefit from them. Ed. Yes. Um, Simon, um, was membership in the guild uh, something to which those in the trades were expected to um, aspire to? Or, um, you know, did you have to have to be asked to join? Or could you say now that I'm certified in this craft uh, and I'm a tradesman, um, you know, was that, how, how was the membership decided? Yeah, the guilds were exclusive organizations. At the height of the guild movement, the guilds in the Middle Ages existed only in the cities that had walls around them. And so you could only practice the trade. Let's say you wanted to be a goldsmith. You could only work as a goldsmith if you had first of all been apprenticed and served the seven-year apprentice to a journeyman, and then you would become a journeyman, and you would continue to ply your craft and hoping to become a master, one of the, one of the owners of the shops. You could not theoretically hope to become a skilled worker in any trade from goldsmithing to being a shoemaker, being a cobbler, without being a member of the guilds. That's the theory. And, and obviously, admission to the guild was, in, was incredibly restrictive, and the best way to get into the guild was to be related to someone who was already in the guild and, 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 and serve your seven-year apprenticeship that way. So the guilds are very exclusive organizations, and you couldn't hope to practice a trade unless you were a member of one. All right. Um, as you said, um, these friendly societies had a huge impact on England for centuries. Were there other 
um, regions of the British colony that also had their friendly societies? Sure. So uh, Australia had and has a very strong friendly society presence. The United States of America, in, in which the friendly societies became known as fraternal orders, also had an incredibly powerful movement, especially in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In fact, all across the British Empire, in India, in South Africa, there were friendly societies. So they, they carried the kind of the, the, the notions of thrift and self-help and collective endeavor all around the world. Okay. Um, since you didn't mention Scotland, I can understand. Why. Uh, Jay, there we go. <laughs> so, Simon, I'm wondering, with these societies, are there, as with um, fraternal orders and things like that, are there rules of conduct that had to be adhered to? Um, you know, do are they self-regulating societies in some sense, or is this really a sense of if I if I pay my dues and I show up and and uh, you know at the monthly meeting or whatever, I'm I'm good to go. You um, are very much expected to abide by a rule book, and the rules do tell you essentially how to behave in public and also how to behave in the lodge room. And every society that I have studied had a rule against any kind of controversial discussion. So political debates were right out. Talking about religion was sometimes banned as well, depending on the makeup of the organization. When you're out in public, you're supposed to bear yourself respectably. You're supposed to be an upstanding member of the community. And you're supposed to abide by the philosophy of the organization, which is often about you know, telling the truth, being a good member of your society, of your culture, of your community, and not imbibing overmuch in alcohol. They don't really have, I mean, there are temperance organizations, but those that meet in the, in the pubs, yes, have a sociable pint, but don't overindulge. So there are, there are very strict expectations about your behavior as a member of a friendly society. It's quite evident ROI will never have a friendly society. Ed, there we <laughs> we are friendly, our, we'll be our own friendly society. We'll make those rules. Yes, yes. Ed. <laughs> so, so presumably then there was a mechanism for expulsion? Yes, and, absolutely. And do you know the details of those, or did they vary? Well, they're... They basically worked in the same way. There's always a member of the, of the society or of the lodge who is designated as the steward, one of whose responsibilities is to make sure that people are adhering to the rules. And if he hears that someone isn't adhering to the rules, to investigate. So when you were on benefit, when you were off of work because you were sick, or you'd had an accident, and you were taking money from the society, as was your right, if you were seen out in public, if you were seen doing something that a person who's sick like you shouldn't be doing, then the steward would find out, and an investigation would ensue, and that could result ultimately in the expulsion of the member from the society. Now, that didn't happen very often, and it didn't happen very often because these organizations were affinity groups. These were men and often women who knew each other very well, and they didn't really want to make each other angry, and they didn't really want to, to, to enforce the rules so stringently 
that they lost members. And so there are all sorts of ways around and qualifications and excuses. And I mean, reading the rules, rule books, I mean, the minute books is, is, is incredible fun because of these outrageous charges. You know, it, there's a, a case that I always remember from the Doncaster Great Northern Railway Locomotive Six Society, where a member is accused of overexerting himself by, quote, picking up sticks when he was in his in his yard. I mean, that's a case perhaps of overzealous enforcement of the regulations. But yeah, there's there are certainly conduct rules, definitely. When I don't when I don't want to do yard work in the upcoming spring, I'll use that with my wife. Right. I'm going to do the same <laughs> thing, and I got more sticks than you do. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, question: You you brought up the women having societies like this. Um, yes. How many were there, or did they have to answer to the male society? Because it was sure in the chauvinistic times. How did they re- re- react and relate to the male organizations? So part of the problem with counting the women's societies is that they tended not to register with the government. So we don't have any real idea about exact numbers. What's pretty clear is that there was a high point between oh, about 1830 and 1860 in the women's friendly societies movement. But they ran into a problem early that men would run into later. And that was actuarial reality. And so um, there was always a problem of trying to estimate childbirth and trying to estimate how much money to set aside to pay for women who were laid up because of childbirth. And ultimately, that was the rock upon which the Women's Friendly Society is founded. They continued to exist through into the 20th century. And in the United States, for example, the Odd Fellows created um, a separate organization specifically for women, which they called the Rebecca's. Um, but that's quite unusual. Around, the re- around the, most of the rest of the world, it's the case that women tended not to join friendly societies. Okay. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Simon, why do you think knowing about British friendly societies in American history is relevant in today's world? Because it tells us something that, his, that the history textbooks don't. And that is that there is an entire history out there that has nothing to do with conflict, that has nothing to do with interpersonal antagonisms or abrasiveness, that has nothing to do with the values that lead to war. Textbooks tend to ignore those. And if you look at the textbook treatments of friendly societies and Freemasons and fraternal orders, it's, it's skewed towards examples of how they got into trouble and how they were in many ways seen as, because of their secrecy, un-American. And so I think that this is an important topic precisely because it shines light on a huge swathe of human society, of human behavior, of human culture, of the ways that we actually interact, okay, which well- is generally peacefully. That is great. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant, 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 526th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which is written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Simon Corduroy, um, chair of the history department at Iowa State University, all hail, uh, who talked to us about British-friendly societies, 1750 to 1940, the history bus for today's show, were Jay Swords and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. And we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.